morning, Henry. How are you today? Uh, amazingly fine. How are you, Chris? Uh, good as usual. Um, <laughs> before we dip our toes into today's topic, uh, the history of Arctic expeditions, um, I think we have some follow-up from last episode. I think I, I think I put you on the spot and stumped you <laughs> with my question how the Antarctic and the Arctic ice volumes uh, compare and uh, I think I think you have an answer now. Do I? Well, I, I, I looked it up, you looked it up, I think, did some research. <laughs> so well, uh, we, we, we can put it at least into uh, perspective that um, it's, it's very difficult to um, to compare those both ice masses because in, in Antarctica we have um, land-based ice mass and in the Arctic we mainly have sea ice. And we, we um, talked about two episodes ago. We talked about the sea ice. So those ice uh, types of ice are are quite different from each other. Oh, definitely yes. And uh, we have in um, in the Arctic um, an area of roughly thirteen point six million square kilometer um, of um, of sea ice, which is the current like just a few days ago the current um, sea ice extent. Uh, this is something we can't really compare um, to the Antarctic because in, in the Antarctic it's a rather small area compared to the, um, to the, to the big area Antarctic is covering. It's uh, 18 million square kilometers. It sounds bigger. It is actually in fact bigger than in the Arctic, but it's a very seasonal um, sea ice. It's just uh, there for the winter, for the Antarctic winter, and it's disappearing as soon as um, the Antarctic spring um, just comes in. So, um, so while the, the, the bulk of the Antarctic ice is on land. Yes, and uh, the, the Arctic sea ice is uh, just staying much longer on um, you know, on the water and it's just getting thicker. It's getting thick up to four meters. So it's a, it's a different... different um, uh, kind of topic we're talking there. Mm -hmm. um, the land-based ice is um, is difficult to say because in, in in the Arctic, when we when we talk about land-based ice in, um, in 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 the Arctic, we are talking mainly about the ice shield of Greenland, and uh, we have uh, what was it, uh, two point nine million cubic kilometers of uh, ice in in the Arctic. 2.9 million cubic kilometers. So that's 2.9 uh, square kilometers, one kilometer high, if you compare it that way. Exactly. While in uh, in uh, Antarctica, we are talking about 27 million cubic kilometers. So <laughs> 10 times the amount. Okay. So uh, the Antarctic, 10 times the amount of ice than in the Arctic. Um, we also looked at the sea ice in the Arctic and just did a rough estimation there based on some numbers. Um, you said like 12 million square kilometers. Mm -hmm. um, and if this was five meters high, which sea ice doesn't get this high, uh, but if it was, so if we're looking at it uh, very generously, do a calculation there, that would add like uh, 60,000 cubic kilometers onto the 2.9 million cubic kilometers in the Arctic. Doesn't change a lot. Uh, when we look at that from from the amount of view, just from the amount, not from any other perspective. So Antarctic still is about uh, about 10 times the amount of ice than the Arctic. All right. Um, so the topic of this episode, as people have already seen in the title, is the history of Arctic expeditions. Um, 
yeah, let's dive right in. Yeah, uh, Arctic expedition is um, yeah very wide, very broad uh, topic. Um, I mean, as long as mankind is uh, sailing the oceans, we can basically talk about the exploration of uh, the Arctic area. And it basically started when the Celts and the Scandinavians sailed out uh, towards the north around uh, the year 500. Um, but in fact, we're talking about um, Arctic expeditions in, in general um, from the year 1500, about that, when uh, Giovanni de uh, Veranzano started his expedition. Altogether, we have so many Arctic expeditions that a list of those um, of those expeditions, just a sheer list, uh, would just cover uh, your books. Um, we have a lot of different kind of approaches on Arctic expeditions, so different areas in the Arctic, and that's uh, a huge difference to the to the Antarctic, for example, where everybody was just heading to the South Pole, and the North the North Pole was one. Uh, one thing to discover, but it was also very strenuous to figure out sea routes along the coastline, for example. So the Northwest Passage was a big thing to discover, the Northeast Passage on the other side as well. And then, of course, figuring out um, if it's possible to go around Greenland. Um, is it possible to sail with the, with the ice drift um, over the North Pole? And uh, how everything is connected there. For a long, long time, people thought that the North Pole was um, a landmass and that there might be also just green flourishing um, grounds waiting for the ones who, be, who will be able to just pass the ice masses. And a lot of expeditions actually failed on their attempt to reach those, um, those landmasses. Uh, in fact, it was uh, Fridtjof Nansen, very, very uh, late in terms of Arctic exploration, who figured out that um, there is actually no landmass when he was uh, yeah, locking in his Fram, his ship Fram um, in 1893 into the sea ice and the New Siberian Islands and just drifted over um, the north. He didn't reach the North Pole, but he tried to get uh, to it um, by uh, dog sledge, um, he couldn't reach the North Pole by dog sledge either because the um, yeah the whole area was just so impassable that he needed to turn around. But um, his uh, assumption was that because of the amount of ice there and just how everything looked like and how he um, experienced it, that there might be no um, landmass up close to the North Pole. And he later on um, got confirmed by others, by other explorers like uh, Rod Amundsen and Umberto Nobile, who just flew over the North Pole uh, in, in airships. Um, but jumping a little bit back before Fritjof Nansen, there was um, the... Uh, yeah, there were several attempts to um, discover and explore the uh, northern routes around uh, Northern America, the, the Northwest Passage. Um, there have been um, thoughts about a passable sea route there, but uh, for a very long time, no one really succeeded there. And uh, in 1845, um, the British captain, uh, Sir John Franklin, just boarded 
uh, his two ships, Erebus and Terra, which uh, went quite famous afterwards. Um, he went with uh, a big crew and started um, this expedition. They actually got stuck in uh, in the Victoria Strait, uh, close to King William Island. King William Island later on gets famous for um, a settlement, Gueya, named after the ship of Roald Amundsen, who also tried to um, sail through the Northwest Passage. However, this expedition of Franklin um, went into history records as Franklin's lost expedition because basically, in the end, he and 129 of, in, of his men just got lost. And it was quite a mystery for quite some time what happened to them until, for example, um, Roald Amundsen on his expedition could uh, yeah, find some remains of that expedition. And he could actually answer some of those questions, uh, what happened to the Franklin expedition. So were those, were those remains found on land somewhere or...? Yeah, actually on King William Island, on the oh, southern part of King William Island, uh, have been found uh, some graves, for example. Yeah. Um, later on, have been uh, a lot of of big names in the um, yeah Arctic exploration. Um, just to mention uh, some few, we, we already talked about um, briefly about Fridtjof Nansen. There has been Adolf Erik Njordenskjöld, uh, Finnish Swedish explorer who um, escaped to Sweden and uh, started his um, exploration expedition uh, career um, in the Swedish scientific Arctic expeditions and a lot of them. He went out four, five, six times uh, with the Swedish scientific Arctic expedition and he went on his own Greenland expeditions um, two times, and he also explored the Northeast Passage. He was the first who sailed around uh, Svalbard, who actually discovered the uh, island of um, Nordöstland, uh, Northeastland in Northeast uh, Svalbard, and who also crossed that. And he was the first one who actually sailed through the Northeast Passage in 1878. So he was one of the of the founding fathers of um, serious Arctic expedition. Followed then later on by um, the Norwegian Fridtjof Nansen, who started expeditioning um, as kind of a research for his uh, zoological studies. And oh, we didn't that, go that go at that from a geological point of view, but from a zoological. Yeah, that was quite common back in the days that most explorers um, actually started as uh, zoologists in in their studies, and uh, from that went out to the uh, to the oceans to actually took some uh, take some research, oh, and uh, and he actually went on a seal hunting vessel to. Um, yeah, to use the seal hunting vessel as a base for some research in the ocean. Um, because that ship got locked in, he uh, got some ideas about further explorations, further expeditions. 
and he started then with the first crossing of Greenland. Uh, Nordenskjöld tried that before him, and uh, also uh, Robert Peary um, tried to cross Greenland before Nansen, but both actually failed, and they failed for certain reasons, because they started their expedition on the settled western side of Greenland and uh, tried to reach the unsettled and rough eastern part of Greenland. Uh, while Friedrich Nansen's ads, um, that appears to be stupid from, from my point of view, because if I start in the east and have nothing to come back, then my drive to reach the west is much, much more intense than uh, turning around. Mm-hmm. So he started with a very, very small expedition team, just six men, including himself, while back in the days, expedition crews usually tended to be very large, a lot of uh, sledges, a lot of animal power, a lot of manpower. He condensed that and uh, chose a different approach, and he was successful with that. And that made his name in the expedition uh, industry or expedition uh, field. And he he became a very, very popular person afterwards. He then went on the Fram expedition, the, the ice drift um, across the North Pole, um, he did become a uh, kind of a mentor for other expeditioners. He was the one people went to to prepare their own expeditions, to ask for equipment, for gear. After the crossing of Greenland, he got stuck in uh, in Greenland for a whole winter because he basically missed the last ship to Copenhagen for just a few days. So he's, he was stuck in, in, in Greenland and he could actually study um, how the Inuit um has adopted to that kind of climate how do they hunt how do they live there how could they survive and that made him quite an expert um and very valuable for further expeditions of uh, of others and uh, for example the um much more famous Roald Amundsen he was one of the uh, beneficiaries of 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 his expertise um before each and every expedition Royal Amundsen did, he consulted uh, Fridtjof Nansen and asked him about his ideas, about his input. And he widely used that input uh, himself. Royal Amundsen himself, also no- uh, Norwegian, he started on a Belgian Antarctic expedition, which wasn't that successful, but um, because this kind of young lad who became... Yeah, assistant expedition leader and basically saved the outcome of the expedition. He turned into um, a very famous person that time um, as well. That was also the period when Friedrich Nansen um, took notice of him and supported him and just uh, yeah gave all his support to to Roald Amundsen. So he actually explored the Northwest Passage as a first one. He completed it. He just sailed through it. He got stuck for two winters, so he needed to camp on King William Island, which gave him the chance to solve that riddle of the lost Franklin expedition. And so so that, and, that was kind of a, an ex- accidental discovery there. Yes, that was not intended. He, um, he just got locked in there as well. And um, yeah, his crew actually mixed with the local uh, Inuit group there. And they founded um, a settlement called Gjöa Haven nowadays, named after Gjöa, the ship of uh, Roald Amundsen. And uh, if you go there today, 
you will hear a story that everybody living there is a descendant of Roald Amundsen. Because, uh, <laughs> basically, basically, they mingled, of course, and um, yeah. So that you find quite some gene pool um, with Norwegian genes All right. in that little village. How, how However, big is the he, village? The, the village is just 150 oh, okay. people, I think. It's not, not many. Um, he sailed. He finished that um, Northwest Passage, crossed it as the first one. And even though they figured out that uh, the route he has taken is commercially not really tempting because uh, it just um, contained some shallow areas of one, one and a half meters of uh, draft, that wasn't suitable for commercial ships. It was still considered to be uh, a big success because he actually proved that it's possible to go that way. And it was quite a nautical, um, uh, a, a nautical um, measure to, to, to be able to sail in those areas. It uh, took actually quite some time. I think 2009 was the first year when the Northwest Passage was um, accessible uh, because of um, the shrinking sea ice. Um, so it took actually uh, quite some time, almost yeah, 100 years after um, Roald Amundsen sailed Northwest Passage for the first time to use that in in any way. So he then later went on his own Fram expedition. So he got the ship from Fridtjof Nansen. Uh, his intention was to uh, reach the North Pole. But since he got uh, information that Peary claimed to reach the North Pole first, he decided to head for Antarctica. And he went on this very famous battle against uh, Scott um, to reach the uh, South Pole first. And of course... As you probably know, he was successful. He later on was a driving person behind the change of expeditions from um, your foot-based um, expedition or sledge-based expedition to airborne expeditions. He reached um, or tried to reach the North Pole by flying boat and later by airship. And in 1926, he actually reached or crossed the North Pole with the airship Norge built by Umberto Nobile, who two years later tried to reach the North Pole I, himself. I, 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 yeah, Mario was quite adamant that the Italians did this first. <laughs> he was, because he's Italian. Well, <laughs> the, the, um, the airship was built by the Italians. Yeah, yeah. that was uh, an, an invention, a construction by Umberto Nobile. But uh, it is counted as an expedition from Roald Amundsen, which um, obviously is not Italian. But of course, that's disputable. Um, Umberto Nobile was on board the airship. So, um, yeah, it, it's kind of perspective question, of course. What I find interesting is um, that if you go uh, up north to Svalbard or Spitsbergen, that um, there's still traces of that history Right there, if you go to uh, New Orleans, for example, um, exactly. they they still have the big the big mast out there that uh, that the airships used to be anchored to. the The, the hangar is not there anymore, but the the mast is there with its uh, diagonal struts, and it's a very iconic kind of building up there. I'm pretty sure you will find the counterpart in Nomi in Alaska as well. Um, okay, it's it's quite um, quite an isolated area quite isolated um, 
yeah, areas, Spitsbergen and um, the north of Alaska. So there is not much intention of uh, yeah, turning those kind of infrastructure down again. So there is no use for it, but there is also no intention to just break it down again. I just remember a very uh, it, was, it was a good feeling to kind of see that that part of history has been preserved. Yeah, that's true. And it's also interesting to see um, that they use the advantages of landmasses they knew. So they didn't start it from from the mainland in Norway or, or Sweden or somewhere else in, in, in Europe, but they went further to uh, Svalbard to um, build the base there and start from there. Very cool. Uh, what we also have for um, as, as kind of a focal point, uh, and that's from a very German perspective, is um, a person called Alfred Wegener, who is more known for his theory of tectonic plates movement. So he actually was the first one who proved the theory of the tectonic plates to be right. But in fact, he studied physics, meteorology, and astronomy. So he had a completely different background than most of the other um, explorers and expeditioners um, in the Arctic. And he didn't went into the um, expeditions with the aim of becoming a well-known explorer like Roald Amundsen, for example. Uh, Amundsen really was an adventurer. Wegener was more scientist. He was the guy who set up the first meteorological station in uh, in Greenland. And he was the one who was gathering data, really just data sets. And he went on a couple of Greenland expedition. Um, in the first Greenland expedition, he was really confronted with, uh, with the early dad of the expedition leader. And later on, he followed um, another expedition on the Greenland crossing. So similar to what Nansen did in the south of Greenland, this expedition did in the north just a few years later. They just... Uh, doubled the distance Nansen um, yeah, just walked from east to west. They also started in the east, but in the northeast in a little place called Denmark, uh, Denmark Town. And they went um, down to Proven and crossed 1,600 1, uh, kilometers um, of the ice. Because back in the days, I wasn't really sure if Greenland was completely covered in ice. Uh, Nansen proved that for um, the south of Greenland, but in the north, they were still skeptical if there could be like a green interior, which which gave Greenland its name. But in fact, uh, they figured out there is still ice or just ice, uh, nothing green left. And this expedition almost ended in a disaster. They lost um, a few of their horses, which they brought in from Iceland, uh, straight on the landing. So they just escaped and they could um, get most of them back. But um, it, they, it turned out that those horses are not meant to be in Greenland. They are not really suited for those conditions there. So most of the horses died along the expedition, along the journey. And in the end, they were almost stranded without food. And they reached basically um, civilization on the very last bits of their abilities. They they almost died on the last few meters. However, he um, eventually died in Greenland uh, on the attempt to set up um, a couple meteorological stations. So he wanted to have a research setup 
a station in the east of Greenland, a station station in the middle of the ice cap, on another station in the west of Greenland. And he was connecting those um, those uh, stations. He was supplying them, and he was collecting data sets. And uh, in November 1930, it was a big storm, and just the path from the western station to the central Greenland um, station was so exhaustive that he um, eventually died on a heart attack and uh, yeah left his life in the middle of Greenland at however the age of at the age of 50 I just see here oh yes yeah, yeah, yeah. he he was uh, uh, yeah already 50 when he took that um, expedition but all of his success all of his um Uh, attempts of trying to understand how the Arctic and especially the uh, Greenlandic ice shield um, affects the creation of climate or the affects the climate for Central Europe, um, that was um, rewarded by the German uh, federal government later on. So the most important polar research institute is um, named after Alfred Wegener. It's the Alfred Wegener Institute. And they nowadays are yeah, trying to, or not trying, they're actually doing a pretty good job. If you just look up Polar Research Institutes, then you will find uh, probably three leading ones, and Alfred Wagner Institute is one of it. And um, they not only have their branches in Spitsbergen and Greenland, but also in the Antarctic. They have their own um, icebreaker research vessel. Um, they have a lot of mobile uh, research facilities and Pulastern actually the icebreaker is embarking uh, this September from Tromsø um, and following on the steps of uh, Amundsen and Nansen uh, will be locked in into sea ice drifting over the North Pole and uh, gathering information they want to use Pulastern as a base camp for um, up to 600 scientists not they at the same will time be though No, they will be exchanged in phases, so mm -hmm. they will be flown in. Um, they will have four supply icebreakers, uh, two Russian, a Swedish, and a Chinese one. They will um, just come by and resupply. And um, they have 150 um, days of polar night uh, in front of them, which they want to use for their research. And... What I actually find very, very interesting is the idea of using um, the ship, the icebreaker, as a locked-in base camp. So the, the the scientists are actually embarking from from the icebreaker onto the sea ice, drilling holes into the ice, taking um, examples uh, or uh, um, taking uh, samples here and there, and just doing their research from there and coming back to the ship. So this is very, very interesting. And um, it's 17 nations participating in that expedition. So it's kind of a expedition uh, not seen so far in that size. Um, they are planning that too. So that is definitely an, a very interesting development and something that we are going to keep an eye on and follow from, from here. So uh, Henry, thank you so much for giving us this overview of the history thanks for having me expeditions um, and uh, if anyone has more questions about this if you want more information we have a website that has contact information on it so if you go to curiouslypolar.com 
there you'll find ways to get in touch and uh, even suggest topics if you have anything that you want to hear about let us know give us your um, your input or feedback and we'll be happy to consider it all right that's it for this week's episode we'll be back in a week from now until then take care bye-bye